Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As we continue this morning to consider our Lord's addresses to the seven churches in Asia Minor, in the middle of the 95th year, or somewhere in the middle of the 90s A.D., sent by the hand of John the Apostle as a part of a book written for the good and the encouragement and the exhortation and the warning to the people of God in the churches, these seven churches representing the church of all the age in which we live from the first coming of the Lord till the second, these seven churches being something of a collection of those characteristics that we should find in all the church throughout history. Perhaps there is a progress even in the order in which we find these letters to the churches, starting with the church at Ephesus, who was beginning to drift away from that which was her primary love, all the way to the church at Laodicea, who had already grown lukewarm and whom the Lord was about to spew out of his mouth. Nevertheless, these letters to these churches, which are incorporated into the larger letter sent to all the churches, are good for our edification, and we find ourselves in the midst of considering the first one to the church at Ephesus. However, before we read the text and enter into the continuation of this message on the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, I want to share a word with you about our church and remind all of you who are here and some who may be visiting among us of the reason we do things the way we do them. We are not ignorant of the fact that some come in our midst as visitors whom we're thrilled to have and who come from different backgrounds and who come from churches who preach Christ, who preach the Bible, and who practice worship in a way that's not the same as ours. We are sensitive to that. We are aware of it. And we very much do not wish to do anything here that would distract or discourage anybody from the worship of the Lord. In fact, it is because of our commitment to the worship of God that we do things the way we do them. Now, what I'm specifically referring to, and the reason that I wanted to spend these few moments at the beginning this morning mentioning it, which will come up again, the Lord willing, in our study of the doctrine of the church later on, the, there is abroad among us this need, or at least the felt need, for there to be something done in the worship of God that makes people feel good. We have a generation of people who don't feel very good most of the time. And they love to feel good. And they spend almost all their time trying to feel good. In fact, that's part of the reason they don't feel good most of the time. Because they give most of their energies to that very thing, which is not a good end for which to live. Well, in the worship of God has crept or into the worship of God, has crept that mentality that if God is the biggest and the best, he surely is going to give the biggest and the best enjoyment. If enjoyment or pleasure is the goal of life, then surely if we can get to the top of the ladder, we'll get the best pleasure. But because we fail to differentiate between the things of the spirit and the things of the flesh, we assume that God is in the business of making our flesh feel good, so we go to those places that would titillate the flesh, or at least the emotions. 
Now, when I was on my vacation, again, we were privileged to worship with some brethren in Texas who worship a bit different from us. Some of the gospel was preached. The Bible is loved by the pastor there. He is committed to the scripture as the only norm for the practice of the church. He's a dear and tender man who loves God and loves God's people. And there are many true believers in the church. There's much to commend itself and much to encourage us. But in the process of our meeting together on one day in visiting, we were discussing casually the business of worship. And he was speaking of the, the kind of worship that's done there, especially as it is attached to the music. And the music there is, uh, is interesting. It's very titillating and very enjoyable. It's what you might enjoy listening to in the tape deck in your car or at home. And it's high-class stuff. They've got some talented people, and they emphasize their talents in the church. So as we were there, we were privileged to hear a beautiful solo sung by a lovely young woman, uh, a beautiful piece of music sung by the choir, and all the accompaniment was piped in over the loudspeaker system on cassette. So there's orchestration that is piped in from a cassette stereo system in the balcony, and then the singers are accompanied by that imported music. Well, certainly the quality of that music is better than any that that congregation could have been able to produce. Uh, no orchestra could be any more beautiful than what we heard in the accompaniment, and it was lovely. The problem was that the focus was upon men, and the attention was upon how it made me feel. And the effort and the orchestration of the whole service was with the intent that people would go out with that warm fuzzy, that little feeling of whatever we call it, but made me want to come back again next week. So what we did, we created a precedent that if I come back next week and the same or better is not given me, I'm going to lose interest. I've been conditioned to expect that God is to bring to me in worship that which makes my flesh feel good, or I'm going to search for worshiping God somewhere else. Now, what does that have to do with us this morning? Why waste time on it? And I'll be frank with you, because recently, brethren, people have turned away from this church. Because in, the, in their visits among us, there was not enough entertainment, and not enough, as they would call it, juice in the singing and in the music. Well, I'm not defending dry, lifeless singing. I'm not defending a pedantic waddling and wallowing through and wading through the heavy waters of ancient hymnody. I'm not defending a dull and rather lifeless effort at mouthing the words of a song and fearing that if I enjoy it, enjoy it too much, I might inject a bit of charismania into the church. Not defending that at all. Would love to see your faces a bit brighter. Would love to see our hearts more cheered. And would love to enter into these hymns much more vigorously than we normally do. However, we've chosen a hymnal that is rooted in old, sound, biblical theology. A hymnal that, by and large, represents most of the great doctrines of the Bible and largely is equipped with lyrics that point us to the truth which saves the soul and not to the titillation of the chill bumps on the spine. We've chosen it for that reason, that we're pretty safe singing the hymns in that book. 
We're not too afraid that we're going to sing one that's going to lead our theology astray or cause us to focus on something other than God and God's Word. Now, we're not saying that there shouldn't be times for people to express their ability to sing to God, but we believe strongly that it's more glorifying to God when all the congregation gathers together and enters in together to the praise of His name so that our choir is 135 or 40 this morning, and the only difference is they sit in front of the preacher instead of behind him. And we don't put down anybody who would exercise their right to do the other. But our motive is not to turn you off. But our motive is to direct your focus to God. The reason we're here is not to make us feel good, primarily, but to minister to the Lord. And we must do it according to His specs, not to our own. And I will tell you that out of a church with 800 members, it's all they can do to get 300 to come on Sunday to be entertained. It's all they can do. Their church is already and still bored with all the influx of talent, with all the budget commitments, with all the extra effort to orchestrate a fun time together, which were the words of one of the leaders of worship that morning, we're going to have fun today. That's the mentality, and the folks are still bored with it. Brethren, why waste the time and the money? Let's worship God, and let's seek to get our hearts engaged. But I want to tell you who may be visiting with us, we are not here to make you feel good. That's not our goal. There are those in town who can, and we could if we wanted to. And I will hasten to say, if I believe for a minute that in the manipulation of the emotions of a people by false gimmicks, we could save one soul from the flames of hell, we'd have it all. We'd have movies, puppets, tambourines, a full orchestra. We'd get it if we had to borrow the money to get it, if it would save a soul. But it's because we don't believe it has anything to do with the saving of a soul that we don't do it. It's not that we're not evangelistic. It's not that we don't love missions and souls. It's not that we don't know how to worship. It's that we want to worship along the lines of God's worship. We want the Lord to be pleased and glorified. And when people walk out, we don't want them to say, that was fun. We want them to say, God is in this place of assurity. So we make no apology for what we're trying to do. We do apologize that there are times in which when we do it, our hearts are empty and we're cold and we don't love our Savior as we should. And we trust that we won't be so much like that that we'll make you leave not saying God was in this place. But we do want you to understand and I want our people to understand again. Brethren, we're not going to gravitate or to capitulate to the pressure of our world in order to get new members to move away from the centrality of a God-centered worship. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. So you bear with us and seek to bring to God that which He deserves when you worship and not come with this neutral blank page waiting for God to stimulate something that ought to be brought to Him as a sacrifice without the stimulation that goes anything beyond what He's already done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that if you're visiting, you'll stay around long enough to find out there's more going on here than a circus act. More going on here than making you feel temporarily good 
till Monday morning when the cruel world faces you again and debilitates you. There's more among us here than happy times. There's some people here struggling with sin, fighting against it, and pursuing a holiness that will glorify their God who saved them. And we trust that you'll catch a little bit of that and give us an opportunity to rub shoulders with you. We're not touting ourselves as superior righteous, but we are not ashamed for you to get to know us as we are. We believe you'll find the work of God marked on us and imprinted on us, and we trust you'll give yourself that opportunity. And not so look at the externals that you run away and miss that which is so needful for your soul. I just felt the pressure to say that today, and it's built up for the last three or four weeks, and my vacation sort of drove it home, and I wanted to make that statement, which we very seldom do in this place. Now, with that behind us, let's read Revelation chapter 2, as the Lord addresses himself to the Ephesian church, and by the way, makes no mention of including in their worship some extra gimmicks to stir up the folks' emotions. Chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your toil and endurance and that you cannot bear evil men and did try them that called themselves apostles and they're not, and did find them false. And you have steadfastness, and did bear for my name's sake, and has not grown weary. But I have this, or I have against you, that you did leave your first love. Remember, therefore, whence you are fallen, and Repent and do the first works or else I come to you and will move your lampstand out of its place except you repent. But this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, quickly, let's go to God in prayer. O Lord, do indeed now help us to declare eternal truth nobly, with dignity, but more so in the power of your own spirit and help us hear and make the differences needed to be made in our hearts and in our lives. Oh God, now do not withhold your spirit from those who come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have considered in our study of this epistle to the Ephesian church is threefold. In the first place, we discovered something of the foundation of this church as we saw it in the book of Acts, chapters 18 through 20, as it was set in apostolic doctrine and practice. 
and as it was marked by radical conversion and reaction. When the people in Ephesus were turned to Christ in the synagogue and then taken next door by the Apostle Paul or down to the hall of Tyrannus and separated from those who refused to hear it in the synagogue, there became a division in the established religion of the day and then a great disruption of the established culture. So there was much fervency caught up in the very essence of the establishment of the church in Ephesus. And so you might well expect that these people, when they came to know Christ, came to know him in the context of much fire and zeal and delight and affection and gratitude. It cost them much to lay hold on Christ. It cost them much to lay hold on truth and sound doctrine. And so you're not surprised to find the faithfulness in the second place of the church at Ephesus, enduring and consisting in arduous service for Christ and his cause, no matter what happened. It was a church occupied in the ordinary, required duties of maintaining the purity of the truth and its proclamation. It was a church marked by its tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth and its practice as seen in the fact that they would not tolerate those in their midst who were evil men, who were false teachers, who were of the Nicolaitans and the antinomians of the day who believed that you could be saved and go to heaven and continue to live in sin and that since grace abounds, we ought to sin all the more so that grace may be glorified all the more. They did not and would not and could not tolerate such. So they're marked by their tenacious adherence to the integrity of the truth in its practice. And also we saw it as a church characterized by its readiness to suffer hardship for the truth to the end. The Lord said, you have endured and you have not grown weary. They followed the reaction of the legalist and the impostors with steadfastness of doctrine, both in teaching and in practice. And any time in the church something rose up which was not true to the center line of gospel life and teaching, they removed it. They excised it. They cut off the right hand. They plucked out the right eye because it was a church faithful to its charter, faithful to its charge, faithful to the truth. So from its foundation in apostolic life and teaching and its foundation in radical turning to Christ in the midst of much persecution, the church was faithful in its work, in its toilsome labor, and in its endurance, all because they were motivated by the name of Christ. And that's why they're so highly commended, the Lord said, for the name of Christ, for my name's sake, you've endured. And so I highly commend you. And so we found that in their foundation and their faithfulness, the Lord is pleased. But then in the third place, we've begun to consider the fall of the church in Ephesus, the beginnings of their departing from their first love. The Lord describes it as having as saying, I have against you this, or I have against you that you did leave. There's a definitive radical point of departure from your first love. The primary love and the love that was marking that was marked among you at the beginning. Now these are terrible words to hear from the Lord. And there are awful things to contemplate by a church which otherwise is highly commended by him. And yet in the midst of this faithful preaching of orthodox truth, 
faithful discipline of that truth in the life of its membership, refusal to let any man mislead the church in error or live ungodly lives in their midst, guarding the truth, preaching the truth, disciplining the life of the people of God in spite of all that, the Lord is threatening to take away their whole witness. In other words, to let them go the way of a lot of other churches who no longer are representatives of Christ's truth in the world. No longer a lampstand shining the light of Christ to the world. Now, why would Christ take so seriously such a failure? This church is preaching the truth. This church is adhering to the truth. This church disciplines those who don't agree with it and don't practice it. You would think the Lord would be a little bit milder in his rebuke and in his warning, but not so. He says, if you don't repent and do the first works which are caught up in your love of God in Christ, you're going to lose your very status as a church. I'll move your lampstand out of its place. There'll be nothing left of you in terms of the witness of Christ in the world. You may stay a church, but you won't be Christ's church. You may still preach, but you won't have my support. And how does he do it? Well, there are a lot of ways he does it. He might withdraw from them the angel of the church, which is a faithful preacher of the word. They don't listen to him. They don't do what he says. In his counsel to them house to house, in his preaching to them in the public, they don't pay attention. They say, no, a preacher has no right to tell me what to do. My pastor doesn't have a right to meddle in my private life. He doesn't have any sense to know it. He's got sins in his own life. I'm going to do this because I've always done it. I can manage my walk with God successfully without all this rigorous specificity. I'm going to do my thing and still fit into this church. God has a way of taking those men away from a church so that the truth preached is no longer preached by the next guy that comes and takes the place so that the love for the truth is no longer fervent. You see, what happens to them when they let their first love go, when they forsake it, when their hearts are drawn back from that ardent affection for Christ which marked their beginnings, what's the next step? His truth will become expendable. Up to now, they're orthodox. Up to now, they're still good disciplines. But it's not far from this lack of affection for Christ to losing the very things for which he can commend them. So you see, it's not enough in Christ's mind, in his kingdom, that we know the truth, that we preach the truth, that we guard the truth. And that we exercise good biblical church discipline. It's not enough. You must also love the Lord Jesus with all your heart. And if you don't, you're going to lose everything else that you had. That's what the Lord is saying. So the church is in the, in the danger of complete annihilation as a church of Christ. So we see them falling. They've already fallen from their first love. We believe this to be the beginnings of apostasy. Not well along the way. We don't believe this church is all the way gone. We think there's much left for them, and yet there's much of which they must repent. Then we went into the background of this problem. We saw something of the establishment of the, of the church, the concern in chapter 6 of, of Ephesians, of Paul who was aware of the need to love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. We then went on through and traced the use of that word in the New Testament about what loving Christ really is or what, what this word incorruption really means. 
And then we analyzed the meaning of the phrase, left your first love. And then we stated something of the causes for which the people of God in Ephesus had left their first love. Probably the very act of orthodoxy, the very life of guarding the truth, of exercising discipline, of learning that there were false sons in the pale of the church, of learning that there were those who were not of truth, that those were deceivers. They had grown a bit callous. They had lost the tenderness. They had lost the sweetness. They were getting, they were good in orthodoxy, but they lost their warmness. They'd gotten good at suspicion. And they'd become a little bit guileful. They'd lost their innocence. They'd lost their holy naivete. Brethren, let God preserve us from losing our innocence. When there are men who lie to us, we must not on that basis then quit trusting anybody. Love believeth all things. Sometimes it gets crucified because it's innocent in the face of, of betrayers and imposters. And yet it continues on with a sort of childlike simplicity. We're not advocating being stupid. We're not advocating letting them take away your house and land without your doing what's right. But we are saying that in the process of the defense of the faith, we must not let the devil come in on the back door and draw away the joy and the sweetness and the life of it. And so we suggest that it's very possible that the very battle of orthodoxy itself is connected with their leaving their first love. In the text itself, they're closely connected. But I have against you, right on the heels of their orthodoxy and their endurance and their steadfastness and discipline, they left their first love. And it's easy to do. Then we listed some of the causes of this. First of all, ignorance of the primary gospel realities. Perhaps faith, forgetfulness of those things. In other words, we forget what sinners we are. What makes people lose their affection for Jesus? They forget what they were before he found them. They forget that when he found them in their blood, lying out in the field, forsaken, orphans, naked, dying, and he clothed them and healed them and saved them and accepted them and loved them and adopted them and made them his own and refused to look at their nakedness and see it as something abhorrent to him. He refused to look at them as undesirable, but he loved them and he delighted in them and he cleaned them up and he brought them to town and he put a suit of clothes on them and he taught them to live and he taught them the etiquettes of life. They forgot all that. Some people forget that they were ever sinners. They forget what they've done to the law of God. They forget how high that law is. And they forget how low they are in comparison to it. And they forget the grace of Christ as sufficient and as sweet. They don't remember how much God has saved them from. Some of the first people in the church who lose their warmth for Christ are the people who start thinking they're better than the rest. The people who begin to think that they're righteous because they've been faithful. They're, God loves them because they've been here a long time. God is accepting of them because they know the truth better than some of the younger ones. God, it, it's, very ten, it's, it's a tendency to those who've been in the faith a while to lose their love for Christ in the very process of vanity and arrogance and pride. They begin to think of themselves as the vanguard of God's cause in the earth. And there becomes a Messiah complex all over them. If, it's not, if it weren't for me, this church couldn't stand. And they begin to mention things like that to other people. They begin to brag about who they kicked out of the church. They begin to boast about what they haven't tolerated. They begin to set themselves up as the epitome. And you see, that causes them to forget. It's evidence that they've forgotten what God saved them from. Brethren, you shouldn't get five minutes away from a brokenness and a humility in the face of what God's done for you. 
in all of your dealings with sin. And sometimes you have to deal with it hard and forcefully. And you have to be firm. And you can't let the sinner think that there's a piece of you that he can get and bring down. And yet in the midst of that, you must never forget that except for the grace of God, you'd be right there. And you must never lose sight of it. Well, I cannot be cold toward Christ while contemplating what I have done with his law in my sin and what he has done for me in his forgiveness. I cannot be cold toward him while I contemplate that with a true heart. I can't do it. I can't meditate on those things and be cold toward him. Oh, I can hear them preached and be cold toward him. I can read them in the Bible and be cold toward him, but I can't contemplate them in the heart and be cold toward him. Well, I truly remember what the Lord Jesus did for me. And there's going to be some stirrings in a, in a regenerate heart of warm affection. So ignorance or forgetfulness or unbelief in primary gospel realities causes us to leave our first love. Secondly, we saw that often we lose our first love because we waste essential providential resources. God has provided us time. He's told us to number our days and we've squandered our time. There are, in this congregation, 25-year-olds who have already wasted 90% of their lives. Who've already built a past that you regret and rule and dread. Who already, there's some 18-year-olds who've already grieved over their past. The kind of culture we live in, brethren, is a sad culture. Because 12-year-olds are already hard. Already bitter. Already resentful. Already depressed, already dead in their souls. We have a culture like that. Well, we got churches like that. We wasted our time. God gave us plenty of Bibles. We left them closed. He sent preachers and we didn't listen. We had our excuses. We had our reasons. We didn't give them more earnest heed to the things we heard. So we drifted away from them. Some forsook the fellowship of the saints. Or they were negligent or haphazard in the fellowship of the saints. They looked for the rules. How many times did the church require me to attend to be a member? Okay, I'll do it. And that's all you ever see of them. And they missed the point. They think they've measured up to the law of Christ. That's not the point. That's not the reason we require you to come. What happens when the saints get together and it's not required? Where are you? Well, when you can be there, you ought to be there. Why? Because the church requires it? No. Because you love those people. Those are your brothers and sisters. That's your family. Not because anybody made you. That's why we don't make you do it in those times. We give you a chance somewhere to do something voluntarily. You ought to. But you see, when you tend to stay away from those opportunities for fellowship with godly people, you yourself will drift away from your love of Christ and his things. God's given us health. What did we do with it? We took our ease. In our health, we ate fat stuff. We drank Cokes. We ate junk. We didn't exercise. We slept too much or not enough. Instead of pre preparing ourselves so that all that is within us could bless his holy name, we bring tired, sleepy, drugged bodies to church on Sunday and expect God to understand when we fall asleep in the middle of his worship. And we've done it so long and we nobody can do anything to change us. We continue on in the practice thinking God is pleased. I tell you, those are the kinds of things that produce a leaving of your first love and lose the candlestick. Where you are right now, some of you who are indulging yourselves in poor worship, in spite of warning after warning, you are setting yourself up, if not the church itself up, 
for a great rude awakening. If not just revealing that you have not a regenerate heart in the first place. The scriptures say it. And brethren, there is no violation of this rule. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What am I saying? And I've added this since we preached it last. What I'm saying is, you go out today having begged God to stir your heart to Him again. Having pleaded with the Lord with sincerity that He make you love Him. That He fill you with delight in Him. You go out and give yourself immediately to those things of the world that, that distract you from Him. You have aborted everything you said and felt in this place. Some of you have done nothing other than, nothing more than, asking God to make you holy. That's all you've done so far. At the very point of your temptations, you have yet to mortify a single sin. You still don't say no when the temptation presents itself. Before it presents itself, oh, Lord, make me holy. Then there's one little specific challenge that comes and you flood yourself toward it. And it's, oh, Lord, make me holy. You want holy. You want a life of holiness. You just don't want to be holy right now. Right here. It's this one exception that I've got to make, but it's always the now exception. And the Bible never knows anything about any repentance except now repentance. Today is the day. Now is the accepted time. And perpetually, some of you have developed a lifestyle of perpetual putting off repentance in the name of overall holiness. Generic righteousness. Life rededicated to God. And in, in the churches I came out of, it was typical on a Sunday to give invitations to people to come forward and rededicate their lives. And they would come forward and the preacher would say, what do you come for? And I want to rededicate my life. Wonderful. We'll check that off in the card. We'll have a generic prayer over all these people that are standing here at the end of the service. They've rededicated their lives. Everybody goes home. Nobody knows what in the world sins were confessed. Nobody's dealt with anything specific. Nobody's apologized to people they've wronged. No consciences have been cleared. And they've rededicated their lives. Two weeks later, a good preacher comes to town who can sway the, the, the crowd. And the same guys come forward rededicating that life again. Two weeks later, their whole life has got to be rededicated again. But they never get anything straight. That's what I'm saying. In the specific time spent in your life, if you continue to give yourself to the things of this world, your heart will love the things of this world. Where you spend the most of your money, where you spend the most of your time, and where you spend the most of your worry and your conversation is where your heart's going to live. Where your treasure is, your heart's going to be there. You tell me that any one of you in this church, if somebody buried in your backyard a pot of solid gold and said, now look where I'm burying it. I'm going to get some grass seed planted here so the neighbors won't know where we put it. You tell me you'd go in the house and just casually think of that maybe every eight or nine months. Oh, yes, oh by the way, remember that pot of gold? I'll tell you what most of you do. You'd, you'd build you a barn over it. You'd put bricks on the barn. You'd put metal on it. You'd reinforce it. You'd have a safe sitting in front of it. And you'd sleep out there. That thing would be the center of your affections. He said, oh, Pastor, you're exaggerating. Brother, I could talk about specifics in lives one after another in this church where your heart dwells on little, much less than a pot of gold. Because where you put your time and your energy and your money, that's where you spend your time. That's where your heart is. That's a law. You won't violate that. 
Some people, their heart is in soap operas. That's what the that's what they talk about when they meet somebody at lunch. Hey, hear about so and so and talk like these people are real. We chat about the latest Hollywood star that did something as though he has something to do with our life. And we're talking about people that aren't even people. They're something else than what they really are. They live their lives being somebody other than what they are. And they constitute a conversation. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so got married? So Who cares? People care who spend their time thinking about that stuff. Sports. It can, con- it can conquer your brain. Food. Drink. And other kinds of legitimate and illegitimate pleasures. Well... What I'm saying to you, if you want your love for Christ to be foremost, and if you want to restore it, and if you want to keep it, it's going to be done in the nitty-gritty, specific, momentary, day-in, day-out choices of options available to you. I'm just telling you this. Some of you are sitting here today, and you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ very much at all. You know it. His word is a lifeless thing to you. Prayer is a dead thing and has been for a long time. And you've endured that for a long time. Now, I'm not saying to you, brother, if that's the case, get out of here. It's over for you. I'm not saying that. But you see, the reason it continues is not because God's not willing to remove it and replace it with what's right. It's because that in the various specific choices of the use of your time, you still aren't giving yourself to God. You come on Sunday and we sort of rope your mind into this stuff. And we yank and we pull to get your concentration. And 15 minutes out of an hour and 10 minutes you're able to think and hear and remember some stuff. How much of that of your life does that constitute, my friend? But when left on your, to yourself, what do you do? What if the, all of a sudden God took away the church and the preaching and every tape? And every book. And you were left with your Bible. And you just had to find out by yourself who God is. And you had to keep your own spiritual self alive. Are you skilled and able to do it today? Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for this? Pastor, don't get dramatic on us. Brother, I'm just talking about the way four-fifths of the Christian world's living this morning. Who don't have the benefits you have. Who don't have the advantages you have. You leave your first love because... You put your treasure in things other than that love. And pretty soon, as the Lord said, the cares of this world, the cares for riches, choke off the word. Some of you who are planting your gardens, go plant your tomato plant in the middle of your lawn. Or better yet, right alongside a nice flowering shrub. Or better yet, at the foot of a willow tree. Just stick it in the ground right there and say, Lord, give us tomatoes. Beg God. Bring it to prayer meeting and have the church pray for fruit to your tomato vine. You know what? You know, you're way ahead of you. That's not the way you get tomatoes. Not good ones. That tree's going to get most of the nutrients. You're not going to get fruit that way. Well, you've got to give yourself to that tomato plant. You don't let anything grow around it. You pluck them out. You pull the weeds. You don't want anything sapping the juice out of the life of the soil but that tomato plant. You want to, you cut off the suckers. You pluck them off because you want the, the tomatoes to get the nutrient, not the little wasted vine. 
And so you limit, you minimize the leaves and you maximize the good stuff going to the fruit. And then about three or four or five months later, you sit at table and say, boy, it's nice to have a fresh garden salad, isn't it? Big old juicy red firm tomato, sun ripened. But you get that through giving yourself to that tomato plant. You don't just stick it in the ground and let it go. And some of you have stuck your soul in the ground and you've let it go. And it's cluttered and choked off with weeds, with TV programs, with money, with job, with pleasures, with all kinds of stuff. And you're sitting here saying, oh Lord, restore to me my first love. Oh Lord, I don't know why you won't give me my first love back. Why don't I feel what I felt when I was first? I don't understand it. Lord, I've asked you and you, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. What's the problem here? See, a good clue to the asking amiss that you may consume it on your own lusts is that in the asking you are also willfully disobeying known commandments. And if we regard sin in our hearts, he will not hear us. So don't, just don't quit trying to block God up in a box and nail him with his own word and manipulate God by quoting verses back to God that he already knows if there are other passages that you're refusing to obey. God's not mocked. What you sow, you reap. God's not mocked. Now, some of you aren't going to change it. Did you know that? There's some hearing me that aren't going to change it. The Lord said that to his crowd. There's some of you that aren't going to change it. There's nothing I can do about it. But you'll stand at the judgment seat without excuse. And you won't be able to point back and say, we didn't tell you. But you see, when it's too late, it's too late. When it so chokes the life out that you can't even breathe enough to get, to get up the energy to pull the weeds, it's too late. Some of you are near there. You're near it. God help you. It's sort of like being 40 or 50 or 60 pounds overweight and trying to get back down. It's a lot harder to get it off than it was to get it on. Because now you've got all that fat on there keeping you from working. I mean, it's almost impossible to tell a fat man to exercise the fat off. He, I mean, that's the whole problem. He's too heavy to exercise. If he goes and runs, he's so heavy, he breaks his knees and his, and his hips and his ankles all up. And he gets his back in trouble, so he can't jog. You see the problem? Some of you are so choked off with the junk that you've gotten because you neglected Christ and you chose those things. Now we're saying invigorate yourself for Christ and you can't. You don't have enough breath. It's choked. It's like a ball constrictor. He just gradually increases the pressure. Each time you exhale, he tightens the grip. And the next breath in is not quite as good as the last one and pretty soon there's no breathing. But it's we who have circled ourselves with a boa. Brethren, that's why we've left our first love. We've wasted essential providential resources. And then we cited that we have indulged in forbidden attitudes and behavior. Unconfessed sin becomes festering sin. And festering sin, unlanced, unmortified, sickens the whole soul. Some of you have things in your life that are infections. They've gotten, they've gone to an infection. They started out as a little scrape. 
but you didn't get them cleaned quickly enough, and you didn't get the bacteria, antibacterial agent on it, and, and now the red streaks are going up the arm, and your blood is infected, and you're beginning to be drowsy and feel bad, and you're beginning to, beginning to sleep a lot, and your life is ebbing from you. And now you're in need of much worse than just some local antibacterial agent. You need a radical surgery, perhaps. The gangrene has set in. And you see, if you don't want to have to pluck off, cut off a right hand and pluck out a right eye, maintain those things in good health all along the way. And you may not have to do that radical kind of surgery. But some of you are at the point of radical surgery. Some of you think that you can get holy and love Christ but not love your brother. How can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother who you do see? The Bible asks that question, and there's no answer to that except you can't. Which brother sitting in this place do you not love? And I'll tell you, that's the measure of how much you love Christ. And because some of you refuse to love a particular brother, God has taken away from you your primary love. You're not going to have it both ways. A bitter soul dies. And like Esau... Often a bitter soul brings a lot of others with it and defiles many. Well, so much for some of the causes to which we've made, it, made some additions this morning. This morning I want us to conclude by suggesting some of the evidences that you do love Christ, that you've not left your first love. Some evidences of love for Christ. Still stirred with warm and fervent affections for him. First of all, one of the evidences of a love for Christ is a heart that's melted in penitential gratitude. A heart that is melted in penitential gratitude. Brethren, I've been in churches that worship God high, but knew nothing about worshiping God deep. I've been where they could make you feel good, but where there was an utter absence of humility and brokenness and gratitude and giving glory to God. Where you go out and say, oh, that was a beautiful orchestra piece. Thanks. <laughs> we try. And you get this feeling that the person doesn't understand the source of all that. Or if you're from a part of the country that I grew up in, sort of like the, the character in the movie Shenandoah who sat at the plate and said the blessing over the food. And recited to the Lord all that they had done to improve the land. They came to the land. They cleared it of the rocks. They cut the trees. They planted the crops. They grew the crops. They harvested the crops. They took care of the crops. Nevertheless, we thank you anyway. There are a lot of people that have that attitude. They forget that it is God that gave them the power to have wealth. And they talk about their achievements either in the world or in the church as though the Lord sort of was standing by as a spectator and is waiting to reward them for what they've done. You get a whole atmosphere. I tried to figure out what was missing recently in a church I visited. What was it missing? What is this missing? What's missing? And it wasn't the lack of excitement. It wasn't the lack of words. It wasn't the lack of activity. It wasn't the lack of people being friendly to each other. Oh, they were friendly with each other during the preaching. Hi, how are you doing? Passing notes. A lot of fellowship. Big social club. What's missing? Well, one thing that was missing was the atmosphere of humble brokenness before a holy God, knowing what I am, and gratitude that God's had the mercy on me to forgive me in Christ. You see, that stuff, you can't put that on. 
You can't put it in words and make that happen. It comes out of the heart. And when your heart drifts away from Christ, it loses that sense of penitential gratitude. Your heart loses its meltingness. It gets cold and icy. And you can say the same words for generations, perhaps, or at least for decades, but lose the heart of it. You can preach on humility. You can preach on brokenness. You can preach on a melted heart, and you can pray in prayer, meaning that God will give it, and you can't. You may not have it anyway. I'm well aware of that danger in my own life as I stand in the pulpit. It scares me. I labor with it. I know that greater judgment comes to me because of the things I say and demand of you. And I pray God will have mercy on me and let me be what I preach. But I'll tell you, if there's not an attitude of a melted heart, remembering its sins, seeing a Savior that has forgiven them, then there's no evidence of love for Christ. Some people grow bored with the simplicity which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to move beyond just the doctrine of sin and forgiveness and grace and salvation. Let's get into some neat stuff like prophecy. I tell you what, there's nothing neater than Jesus and his forgiving of sin and saving sinners. That's it. And I'm not, I don't believe I'm reducing the Bible down to a pure little simplistic evangelism when I say, say that. Don't ever get away from loving the simple things. You, as the Colossians were warned that they could have the simplicity which is in Christ robbed from them by giving heed to those that were adding stuff to the Christian life and the faith. I'll tell you, it's the sweet times when we just preach the gospel here that I love the best. It's the times like tonight when we come together around a simple observance of a simple table, just remembering our Lord's broken body and shed blood. Those are my favorite times in the church. I enjoy preaching elaborate kinds of teaching things where we go down list one through nine and A through B and little one through little six. I, I like doing all that stuff, but I'll tell you what I love. I love looking at my Savior and remembering what he's done for me. I love sitting at his feet and just saying, thank you, Lord. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I love singing it to my little ones and, and teaching it to them and listening to them sing it. I love having them sing to me on the way to church on Sunday morning. You want a means of grace, teach your kids to sing hymns and then tell them to sing it to you while you're on the way to church. That'll bless your soul. Wake up on, in, the, on, in the morning at 5.30 and hear your children in the other room singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. That'll bless you. Teach them the simple things and don't you forget them. Oh no, may there never come a day in which the childlike exultation and the blessing of saving grace doesn't flow readily from our lips and countenance. We ought to be ready at every point to say, No, oh, I thank God for saving my soul. I just thank God for saving my soul. You're not sophisticated when you forget to say that or when you think that we're going to despise that. Anybody here that despises that has left his first love. Yes, let's learn the whole counsel of God. But all of it's going to revolve around and center upon our precious Savior who saves little sinners. Your heart will be melted in penitential gratitude if you've maintained your love for Christ. Second, if you have love for Christ as the foremost part of your heart, your soul will be exercised in intense wrestlings for greater personal holiness. Your soul exercised in intense wrestlings for greater personal holiness. 
You won't be occupied with a complacent sense of well-being. Oh, yes, things are going great all the time. The world's wonderful. Well, it's good to be positive and optimistic, and I think there needs to be more of it among us. But I tell you, there ought to be an exercise of wrestling about you, a striving against sin. For greater personal holiness, you have not arrived yet, my dear friend. It's going to be a while before you do if the Lord tarries. And if you love Christ, you can't possibly be complacent with sin in your life. It's impossible. If there's sin known in your life, and you're indulging it without fighting it, I fear for your thought conversion. I question it. And I think your Bible questions it too. If there's something that jumps in your mind as soon as I said those last words, some specific thing that you've been allowing and willfully allowing and making no effort to kill, you need to question whether you really love Jesus Christ at all. You need to question it. Now, I'm not talking about things that came to your mind immediately and you're fighting and you don't seem to be making much progress. I'm not saying that. But I am speaking of those who know their sin and have no plans to deal with it because they've decided that that sin is one with which I can live in peaceful coexistence. I wonder about that. If you love the Lord Jesus, your soul is exercised in intense wrestlings. You see what I'm saying? If it's not intense, then, it, then you're, you've lost your first love. That's where some of you are. You're, letting, you're, you're dealing with, you're wrestling with sin, but you're sort of flopping an old empty arm at it. You're getting out of the wrestling match and you're showing up for the match, but you're not much threat to sin. Every time you get and grapple with it, it pins you. You don't even last the third round. You're down. Count of three. First round, it's over. Sin touches you and you fall. That's not intense wrestling. And if you love Jesus, you're going to fight sin to the death. But it's evidence that you don't if you're not. Longing, hungering, and thirsting after the righteousness which I've seen and tasted, but which I know so little of. Keeping short accounts, as we heard much about from Pastor Huffstetter, keeping short accounts. Brother, don't let something go wrong between you and somebody else or between you and God and let it last tonight. If you love the Lord Jesus, you won't do that. Don't do it. Third place, evidence for loving Christ. Not only will your heart be melted in penitential gratitude and your soul exercised in intense wrestlings for greater personal holiness, but also your mind will be occupied with fervent desire for the salvation of your acquaintances. Those who love Jesus love souls. Those who are still warmly, ardently affectionate toward Christ still desire to see people saved. As Rachel said, give me children or I die. That's the spirit of a saint who loves his Lord Jesus first of all. The Lord died to save sinners. How can you love Jesus without being somehow caught up in that motivation? The Apostle Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I could wish myself accursed from Christ. For my kinsmen, according to the flesh's sake. I don't think that's a, an apostolic example that we're not to attain. I think that's a Christian spirit that we ought to strive to have. 
And why do I add that to my sermon? Because there are folks in this church that haven't lifted a finger or a prayer in a long time for the salvation of anybody. And when you do, it's not a striving. It's not desperate. It's not, oh God, what will become of them if you don't save them? You see, a lot of times it's in direct proportion to how you prayed for your own salvation. Some of you sort of osmosed into Christianity. So you sort of osmos in your prayers for others. Some of you haven't ever radically repented, perhaps. Maybe somebody sitting here who thinks he's a Christian because he made him a decision one time, or he prayed a prayer, but nothing really happened. And maybe that's why you just can't bring yourself to striving for another. You never strove for your own soul. And I doubt that you'll ever love the salvation of another more than you love the salvation of yourself. You show me a man whom God has forgiven much, and I'll show you a man who wants him to do it for somebody else. That dear woman at the feet of Jesus, the Lord said she loves much. She was forgiven much. That's why her tears are bathing my feet. That's why she can't get enough of me. And I have a feeling that woman went home and told a lot of other ladies she knew. You're not going to believe what's happened to me. I'm not the same. And probably didn't have to say much. I believe that in that only passage in the New Testament in which individuals are given a mandate about personal witnessing, the only text in the whole New Testament in which there's a direct imperative for, for Christians individually to bear witness to Christ verbally in the, in the epistle of Peter where he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart always and be ready. That's the imperative. Be ready. To give... An answer for the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Even in that imperative, the Lord doesn't say, make sure you've knocked on every door in Albany before the week's over. The Lord says, be ready. Having sanctified the Lord God in your heart. And the assumption there is that if he's sanctified in your heart, you'll be ready. To what? Give an answer. On what basis? Because somebody has asked the question. Why? Because they see a life whose heart has been sanctified. They can see it. They can smell it. And though most of them keep a ten foot pole's length between themselves and you, once in a while at night one will sneak in and say, don't tell them I came, but how do you do what you do? Oh, they're not going to come up and say, tell me about Jesus. That's not what that means. It means they see you living a life that looks like you live with hope instead of despair. They see you going through stuff they go through and you come out of it different from the way they come out of it. They see you getting cursed and you don't curse back. They see a guy cut you off in traffic and you don't get all bent out of shape over it. And they cuss when that happens. And along the way, they look at you and say, you're weird. How do you let that boss treat you this way? Don't you know the Labor Relations Board is available to you? Get your lawyer. Nail that guy. You're not going to let him get by with it, are you? That's the spirit of the world. They're going to ask, why aren't you with it, man? Be ready. And as soon as they ask that question, say, simply put, were it not for the Lord Jesus, I would be exactly what you think I ought to be. 
But God's made a change in my life. You interested? Pastor, if I say that, they're never going to talk to me again. Well, if that's the reason, brother, fine. If that's the reason, you, they're going to like, they got to find out someday, don't they? Is it the kind of friendship you want? The kind that if it knew the truth wouldn't be a friend? Is that what you want? Might as well get it out of the way as quickly as possible. Let them know who you are. You see the point? How many of you are doing that kind of thing? How many of you are ready to give an answer, brethren? Some of you aren't even ready to give an answer because you haven't sanctified the Lord in your own heart. If you love Jesus primarily and with warm, ardent affection, you'll be occupied with a fervent desire for the salvation of your acquaintances. When the church gathers, you'll be praying and you'll be looking around. Not after worship starts, but beforehand. You, you won't be jockeying around at 10.29 and a half checking out the latest Friday adventure of your friends in this place. You'll be in your place ready. You'll be prepared yourself to worship and you'll glance around to see if there are any people in the church building that you don't know that may be candidates for the grace of God. And you'll be whispering prayers, Oh God, give grace to the preaching. Open the heart. Oh Lord, save sinners. Could it be that part of the reasons many churches don't see much of that is because many people sitting there aren't preparing much of that? You see, it's evidence that you've left your first love. That's what I'm saying. You. If that's not there, you are Ephesus. This church. Don't grow weary praying for them and witnessing to them and inviting them. Don't grow weary. Don't look at your track record and say, what's the use? You may never win a soul. But if you love the Lord Jesus, you'll never quit wanting to see them saved. It'll be a grief to you every time they walk out unsaved. You won't say, well, you know, they got a little truth preached. No, you say, Lord, save them. Oh, God, save them. Your head will duck and you'll grieve every time a man is able to escape the snare of the gospel. The day I'm able to stand in this place and plead with sinners whom I see sitting here this morning... And let you walk out and not really feel much when you walked out unsaved. I will resign from the Christian ministry. God help me never to meet and have that day. By God's grace so far, it has yet to happen. In 26 years of preaching, it has yet to happen that I can stand in a foyer and not grieve when a man walks. I'll, I'll smile. I'll hug the neck and say, glad to see you. But in my heart... When is the repentance going to come? When's the broken heart? When are you going to see it, man? You're still on the way to hell as you leave and I may never see you again. God help us not to lose that. And it's the duty of every saint sitting in this place to feel that. And to exercise it. And to strive with that. Let's labor together for the souls of men. Or we can confess that we've left our first love. Well, finally, as the last evidence of love for Christ is service characterized by delight and joy rather than by dread and weariness. Service 
characterized by delight and joy rather than by dread and weariness. Nehemiah's people were told by the Levites, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the midst of opposition, the city was great and big and the wall was a massive. They were having to rebuild the whole circumference wall of Jerusalem. And there weren't a lot of them, relatively speaking. What was their strength? The joy of the Lord is your strength. How do you serve God faithfully? How do you keep on getting up in the morning and living with an unsaved spouse? Or living in a bad job situation? How do you keep the light of Christ, the joy of the Lord, that grows out of the love of Christ? Don't forget whom you serve. Don't lose sight of the city of God whose walls you're building. Simply think on Christ. You see, if you love the Lord Jesus, you will prefer the smallest things of Christ to the best that the world has. You'd rather be suffering affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There are athletes who, with two minutes left in a big game, totally exhausted, bodies racked with pain, already beaten down, trailing by three points, give their last measure of devotion simply because the coach deserves it. They love the coach. I've heard them testify to it. There are coaches whose athletes work just because of the coach. And they go beyond 100%. Just because of coach. There are Christians who endure what they endure and serve as they serve and keep a joyful look on their countenance because of their master. You see, if you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus whom you serve, that will impregnate your service with delight. The service itself, as you might analyze it on a horizontal basis, is not very delightful. It may be grievous. You may be working for a boss that's forward and unfair and doesn't pay you. But the scripture says, evidence of repentance is that you're content with your wages. John the Baptist wouldn't even baptize a guy who wasn't content with his wages. Wouldn't even, let him, wouldn't even call him a convert. Did I tell you anything? Your service may not be earthly-minded, rewarded, but if you look to the one whom you serve, as he says in Colossians, servants, obey your masters as all things, not with eye, eye service, men pleasers. You serve the Lord Christ. That's not only a warning. It's an encouragement. How do you keep it going, fellas? Getting up early. Going through the drudgery. You don't get paid what you think you're worth. You come home. Sometimes you, your family doesn't even know, understand, appreciate how do you do it? Because you serve Christ. That's how. Ladies, how do you do it? He doesn't appreciate you. He forgets. He's not tender. He didn't, doesn't bring flowers on your anniversary. He never says thank you. He gripes about the food. He expects you to be there when he needs you. But half the time when you need him, he's not there. How do you do it? You serve the Lord Christ. And see, if you keep your devotion on him and you keep your fo focus on him... Your service will be characterized by delight and joy. 
Well, some implications. Some of you have nearly given up on hope in religion. Some of you are sitting right here and you're on the verge of quitting. You've nearly given up hope that religion's worth the trip. It just doesn't seem to work for you. You, th- you think you've tried it all and it just it's just not working for you. The religion which has failed you, my friend, is a false religion. The religion that has no heart, which is what you want, is the religion that's not the true one. You have every reason to reject a religion which doesn't get to your heart. If you're cold and dead and you've been that way for two or three years and it just doesn't mean anything to you and you're just here by rote, that is not the religion that we preach. We're not telling you, worship God and feel nothing. We're not telling you, do right, but don't have affection in it. We're not saying that. Do you desire to feel the truth? Do you desire a faith that weeps, that rejoices? Then welcome to Jesus Christ. Because that's the kind he gives. He deals with the heart. He sees the depth of your sin. And he faces it head on. He knows you're an adulterer. And he's dealing with adulterers. And he'll deal with your sin. He knows the clutches that the cables of sin have latched onto your heart. You want to feel Christ and delight in Him? Then come with all your sin to Him and turn away from the sin and lay it down. You'll know the delight of Christ, but you don't keep your sin and find the delight of Christ. He condemns sin's deepest depravity and He heals it at its roots. Does your religion not touch the heart? Does it not go any deeper than externals and rules and jobs? Does it allow you to possess a rotten spirit while praising this showy piosity that's so rampant? Does it leave you perpetually cold while driving you to fear and to dread and slavery? Does your religion delight to please man but give no account for pleasing God? Does it promote drudgery and ignore delight? Then cast it away. It's not real. Now, does this mean... That if you don't feel good perpetually, that you should throw off the truth that you've read and heard? Of course not. The fault isn't in Christ. The fault is in us. We're the ones that left our first love. We're the ones that drifted. We're the ones that didn't give the earnest heed to what we heard. We're the ones that let it get choked off by the cares of the world. We're the ones that continue to go back to the same old mud trough, wallowing in the mire. We're the dogs that return to the vomit. We're the ones, not Christ. You see, the provision for our need is not in us, but in Christ. Like the fault is not in Christ, but in us. Turn away from yourself. Go to God and say, Lord, I don't feel it. And stay there till you do now, am I talking about that external sort of a frothy feeling of people sort of floating around jolly? No, I'm not talking about that. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reading your Bible and knowing that you're reading truth and preferring it to all other things. I'm talking about coming to church because you look forward to being with God's people and hearing God's word and hearing God speak and enjoying God. 
knowing that you never in this world are going to feel it and enjoy it as much as you ought and as much as there is to be enjoyed, but wanting it more than anything else and giving yourself more and more and more to those things which will promote that in your heart. So what we're looking for is not a bunch of people who have it all settled, but we're looking for some people who are in the process of fighting down and mortifying the sins which are keeping them from loving the Lord Jesus supremely. I don't have any illusions about you, brethren. I'm one of you. We don't love our Savior as we ought to love Him. I, you don't need to fake it with me. I'm not, I don't got a standard for you that if you don't meet up to it, I'm putting you off. If I had that, half of you wouldn't even come visit you. Any more than you'd come and visit me. But I do have an expectation in myself and in you that we don't, aren't complacent and content with such a condition. And that we want to love the Lord Jesus more than anything else. And if there's something else in the way of that and that we just can't seem to drop, drop it. Kill it. It may be in the person of a beloved loved one. It may be in a fiancé. It may be in a, in a car. It may be in something even less noble. But I'll tell you, whatever it is, move it out of the way till Jesus occupies all your vision and all your heart. If it's the TV set, turn it off, put it in the basement, until Christ gets your, gets your confidence back, until he gets your time, until he gets your thought, until he gets your heart. Then if you can snuggle in a little TV, fine, but watch yourself. Well, the final thing I want to say, the loss of the ardor and the fervency that you had for Christ is no small thing. The Lord Jesus, after commending the church, rebukes it severely and says, Repent! And do the first works or else. This is not something that you can afford the luxury of waiting another seven days, my dear friend. First of all, the cure is not in the final analysis in this pulpit. It's in your heart. And you waiting till next Sunday when you get stirred up a bit more again is a foolish thing to do. Because it's the stuff that's going to happen between today and next Sunday that's going to make it harder next Sunday for you to hear. This is a day the Lord has given to us all day to get right things that are wrong and to draw near to God. Don't waste it. You need it. Else the Lord will come and will take away the lampstand. I appeal to the Albany Baptist Church this morning. To you who sit smugly. To some of you who don't see the issue. Who aren't convinced I'm telling you the truth. I tell you. God there will come a day when God will take this thing away. If we are content sort of to go through the motions. Let us die before we lose our love for Christ. And if we've lost it. Let us do everything there is within our hand to do to get it back. Remember from what you've fallen and repent and go back and do that. What else is more important to you than that? Well, in the final analysis, this church is not here to please anybody. And it's not here to provide an outlet for your social needs or for your children's social needs. If it were, we would do a much better job. We'd have a bowling alley, a skating rink, a swimming pool, 
Because those are things that certainly satisfy a lot of social needs. No. This church is here as a place set aside where people exercising the whole humanity God's put in them with a whole soul devotion can enjoy and love and glorify their triune God forever. We're here for God. It's interesting that the very missionary movement of the book of Acts grew out of a few elders and apostles who were ministering to the Lord in Antioch. That's what we're here for. If you've lost the fervency of that, take the rebuke of Christ, the warning of Christ, and the encouragement of Christ to look at the city, the paradise of God, which you get if you faithfully endure in loving Him. And go back to where you were and love the Lord Jesus with all your heart. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you can't look back and find a time when you ever did, it may well be that you haven't fallen and left your first love. You may never have had it. You may be a lost person. You may be in your sin. God give you grace this morning to be honest with yourself. And to turn from your sin. And to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to embrace him. May God help us brethren to love him with a whole fervent heart. May we see it even tonight when we get together. Or may we see an, an extra measure of it among us. May we see a delightsomeness in the presence of Christ even more than we've seen. And I trust that if there are those of you here who have in your honest searching of your conscience do not see that this is a real problem. That you do love the Lord Jesus and that you still are fervent for him. That you'll take this and just use it in the future for your own good. And won't go out and think I'm trying to beat you all over the head. But I do trust that if you are getting to the point that you think it's normal to stay like this. Brethren, it's not normal. It kills churches. It kills souls. Do what it takes. Ask God to help. And do what it takes to center your focus and your affections on the Lord Jesus. The way many of us remember that it was at one time. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize from what we've read that the best of churches can fall from their first love. And though we would not put ourselves in the category of the best of churches, we certainly know our propensity. Even in orthodoxy, even in steadfast labor and endurance, we understand the very real possibility of losing the sweetness and the affection and the ardor that ought to characterize your people. Lord, in your mercies, let it not happen here. And where it has happened here, we pray, O oh God, that you would undertake to restore it. Lord, have mercy upon us who are slow to hear, who are swift to speak. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and help us to put within us the love of Christ abroad in our hearts in a measure that will intensify the fervency of our love for you. And may we see the evidence of it increasingly in our church. Oh Lord, help these dear people, your children, for whom your son has died, that they may show forth the excellencies of him who called us by their sweet affections to you and to one another. Give us grace, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen.